Welcome, everybody, to our latest episode of our podcast, The S Word, a podcast about suicide prevention. My name is Sarah Kolbeck, and I am an assistant professor in psychiatry and behavioral medicine at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and I work with Andrew in the Division of Suicide Prevention there. Hi, Andrew. Hey, everyone. I'm Andrew. I'm a clinical psychologist and uh, assistant professor in the Trauma and Acute Care Surgery Division here at the Medical College. And we are really excited to be joined by Dr. Joyce Chu today. Yes. Yeah, we're very excited. But before we dive into the discussion for our podcast today, just want to mention a couple of quick reminders. Uh, First of all, just giving our usual content reminder that this podcast will be discussing issues related to suicide and suicide prevention. And so if you are not in a good headspace to listen to this topic today, please hit pause and come back later. We will be here when you're ready. And a reminder to take some time for yourself after listening to today's episode to just engage in a little bit of self-care. Also want to remind folks of the resources that are available if you are concerned about yourself or a loved one. You can reach the Wisconsin Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. You can either dial or text 988. You can also reach the 24-7 Crisis Text Line, which is called the Hope Line. That is available by texting the word TALK to 741-741. And as mentioned by Andrew, we are joined today by Dr. Joyce Chu as our guest. Dr. Chu is a licensed clinical psychologist whose expertise lies in the areas of suicide prevention, diversity and culture, and community mental health. Dr. Chu is currently a professor of psychology at Palo Alto University, where she directs the diversity and community mental health emphasis and multicultural suicide research center. Her work is focused around advancing the assessment and prevention of suicide for ethnic minority and LGBTQ populations, particularly in Asian Americans. And her work is community collaborative and aims to address the need for culturally congruent outreach and service options for underserved communities. Welcome Dr. Chu, we're so glad to have you today. Thank you, Sarah and Andrew. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, so so to start out, um, you know, we're always curious, Dr. Chu, to hear about how people kind of got into this line of work. So I know, as Sarah mentioned in uh, the introduction, that you're a clinical psychologist. Um, how did you get interested in this expertise in uh, developing uh, this area of your practice and research? Yeah, thanks, Andrew, for the question. Um, I think it goes all the way back to you know my roots as a, identify as a, a second generation Chinese American individual. My my parents um, were immigrants uh, to the U.S. and so we grew up. I grew up in a, a, a quite um, I don't know, kind of lower to middle acculturated kind of in community uh, where all we did was eat Chinese food. Um, all of my family friends, they were all Chinese first generation individuals and families as well. And I think as I was growing up, I, uh, I was just, I was drawn to psychology. I was drawn to the way that people think and behave and wanting to really support communities, very community oriented, um, kind of inclinations. And, I think I started to realize, you know, as I as I reached teenagehood, that there were issues in my community that people just weren't 
realizing were there. So what I then later in hindsight realized within my own family, um, there was depression, um, there was um, some probably clinical levels of anxiety. Um, I, I didn't learn until you know many, many years later that I had a, a family member who had uh, schizophrenia that nobody talked about. I actually didn't even know of her existence. Mm. And so, and eating disorders. So, but at the time we didn't have that vocabulary to understand what that was about. Um, I had a, a, a good friend who had um, some serious suicidal thoughts and we had no vocabulary around how to understand any of those things, nor do I think that anybody got any assistance whatsoever for mm. any of those issues. And I think when I, you know, went off to college and and thought about what I wanted to, to study, I realized that, um, you know, there's, there's just not very many people in a lot of different ethnic minority communities, like the one where I grew up in, where, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of work to do to educate folks in culturally congruent ways about what, what mental health conditions are, um, what suicide might look like, and how to get people uh, the kind of help that fits their community, not necessarily, and that may not, the help that fits cultural communities may not fit what has been developed in the US. And so mm-hmm. um, I realized there's just a lot of work to do. Um, and I started getting into suicide prevention a little bit later on in my career um, when I became a faculty member, uh, because I realized that that is where a lot of silent suffering was happening, not only in my community of origin, but, um, you know, my um, other underserved communities of color and LGBTQ communities overall. Mm-hmm. And that um, as folks start to have suicidal thoughts and they are suffering from um, suicidal distress, it is made the culmination of all of those things that I was, that I was saying. And, and that, um, I really wanted to do my part to be able to try to decrease some of those um, disparities that I was seeing. Yeah. Thank you for that. And you mentioned this term culturally congruent. Um, I've heard like culturally competent, culturally humble. Can you speak a little bit about what culturally congruent means or what that means to you and the work that you do? Yeah, I tend to use, uh, I like the word culturally, the words culturally attuned, culturally responsive, or culturally congruent um, as umbrella terms. Uh, mm-hmm. And culturally competent, I, I will use it sometimes um, amongst folks who understand that there isn't an end competence that we're trying to mm-hmm. get to, and that it's an end point mm-hmm. that you can achieve that uh, this work is really more of an, an ongoing journey where it's so important to work with cultural communities where they're at in this respect, their voice with equal, um, if not equal, but more um, empowering collaborations. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I think cultural humility work is incredibly important, but it is just the starting point. It's just the foundation of what we need to do. And I think that culturally responsive, for example, is more action oriented. So I tend to be uh, Mm -hmm. someone who really values translational work and taking what we know from research and putting it into action. And so um, the way that we 
look at suicide warning signs, for example, the way that we intervene to help someone recover from suicidal distress, those are actions that as clinicians, we need to respond actively to and change the way that we've been historically doing things, which takes cultural humility at the base and it takes um, other applied work. Uh, and that's why I like those more action-oriented terms that are more inclusive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate that. So uh, I'm curious to kind of just start out to hear a little bit about what a typical day or week looks like for you. I'm curious, uh, you know, are you engaging in clinical practice? Are you like focused on research at this stage or how do you spend your time as a, as a psychologist? Uh, That's a great question. I mean, my my mission in life um, is is really to do my part in doing what I can to culturally infuse suicide prevention and management from A to Z. And that means there's a lot of work to do because I, I really think that there are a lot of communities that are not being served, that are not being reached. And on a day-to-day basis, that, that spans a lot of different areas for me. So um, in my teaching, uh, I had the privilege of being given the opportunity to start a emphasis for our clinical psychology PhD students, um, where we are training folks in what is called the diversity and community mental health emphasis to do this kind of work for uh, county mental health and community mental health underserved diverse populations. Um, And so I do a lot of teaching of courses like mental health disparities or Um, community mental health, where we learn how to do engage in community-based participatory research. We learn how to do mixed methods and qualitative coding. Uh, We learn how to do program evaluation in a way that attends to diversity. And all of those skills uh, can be applied to suicide prevention. We we talk with psychologists about how to expand their perspectives to public health, where we need a a lot more partnerships with public health and psychology and social work in order to really infuse culture into suicide prevention. So that's my teaching life. Um, I do also a lot of just different research projects um, on, you know, really trying to advance that mission of understanding the ways in which we do need to transform our practice and and the ways that suicide uh, prevention should look differently um, once we understand cultural variations. Um, and I do a lot of supervision and consultation, both clinical and organizational. So um, really focused on a lot of different partnerships with communities. I do identify as a, commu- a community clinical psychologist. So um, really, really value my partnerships with different community agencies and community mental health county agencies and organizations, um, working with them to transform their suicide prevention trainings and processes and programs and media efforts and everything from A to Z. Phenomenal. It's great. Sounds like you're really busy. (laughs) It's really meaningful work. Good. Um, Yeah, yeah, there's there's definitely no shortage of of things to do. That's for sure. Yeah, I totally understand. So in terms of multiculturally responsive suicide prevention or that culturally congruent suicide prevention, what is or what are some of the gaps that you see in that space? Well, there are many. Um, I think that we're we, the the train is moving. There's a there's been a lot of efforts to um, innovate, uh, but there's a lot of work to do. Maybe I'll start 
with more upstream efforts and go to mm-hmm. more downstream. So I think on the upstream end, there are just so many examples where if you look at the work from a cultural lens, you just notice that a lot of what we've been doing with suicide prevention upstream has just doesn't doesn't meet the needs of um, some of these, you know, the cultural communities that we're talking about. So anything from, you know, a lot of means restriction efforts really focusing on firearms and firearms as a means of suicide is it's incredibly important. It's a very lethal means of suicide. So we have to do that work. Um, but that's not the primary method of suicide for the ethnic minority communities in the mm-hmm. US. Mm-hmm. Um, firearms is more common in white populations and older adults, um, for example. And, uh, but, you know, at least locally where I am in California and the trends across the US um, also kind of point to different ethnic minority communities choosing hanging as a means uh, for suicide. And that is a lot more complicated when you look at means restriction. Yes. Um, and and so uh, some of my local partners realizing that by not uh, tackling that as a, as a means, uh, then we're not appropriately serving our diverse communities. They've put together a work group to try to tackle that issue um, mm-hmm. and some really innovative work there. So that's just one example upstream, as well as other media, you know, brochures, messaging. A lot of the warning signs that we use don't have what we know now to be evidence-based warning signs for suicide and risk factors and protective factors for suicide. Mm-hmm. And so um, I've worked with a lot of my community partners to infuse some of those cultural warning signs into their uh, media efforts and their sure. marketing efforts, yeah, or education efforts. Oh. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you. Yeah, so that's upstream. Uh, and there's yeah, a but... couple examples. There's a lot, a lot of yeah. examples um, of things that need to happen. Um, but uh, downstream... Mm-hmm. You know, downstream, a lot of the assessments and screening instruments that we use don't look for cultural idioms of distress, uh, which are, you know, different language and language and experiences and expressions of suicidal distress that we know to be different across different folks. We use the same questions to ask about suicide. We use uh, the same checklist. We use the same summaries uh, to perform our own assessments and screenings for to detect suicidal distress. Uh, We know that ethnic minorities may be less likely to to report their suicidal thoughts, uh, depending on how you ask them. So, you know, when you're asking someone on a self-report questionnaire, we have some research to suggest that, you know, they they may choose to deny suicidal thoughts um, in that format as compared to if you ask face-to-face. Uh, so we need to incorporate a lot of those different um, considerations in the way that we detect suicide, because I've definitely consulted on, you know, um, a handful of cl- or more clinical cases where we've either underdetected suicide, suicidal distress or misdetected it um, because of some of those other cultural ways in which folks experience their suicide. And so there's a lot of work to do in terms of training clinicians on how to incorporate some of those considerations. Um, even into safety planning, um, we published a case study where, so interestingly, you know, the cultural understandings were infused all throughout this 
this client's case formulation, but when it came to suicide prevention and management, the safety plan had none of those cultural considerations in it. Mm. Um, but when you look at a culturally adapted and a culturally congruent, culturally responsive safety plan for someone who has a lot of these cultural risk factors and protective, they, it looks completely different, but mm-hmm. we're just not as clinicians trained to think about, um, you know, merging those two things together. So mm-hmm. that's really one of my missions is to really see if we can transform the way in which we do some of that downstream work and also get people into the downstream work. So the connection between upstream and downstream is also incredibly important. We don't know, for example, um, really how well the, you know, a hotline, a suicide and crisis hotline, who that reaches and who it doesn't. Um, and, and so, and yet a lot of different cultural communities have questions about who are they talking to? Is it safe? Um, there's a lot of historical harms that have been done to different um, minority communities. And, and yet we, we funnel folks um, you know, so much in one direction, but we haven't, yeah. but outreach and engagement of folks who have had historical harms in their communities yeah. is a very complicated issue and is not something that is necessarily as straightforward as I think we are hoping it to be. And so yeah. there's a lot of work to do there um, to really tailor our outreach. And there's a lot of really amazing innovation efforts that are trying to tackle that issue. That's fantastic. Yeah. The kind of case example you raised is really interesting to me in terms of maybe the uh, like a safety plan, not just kind of being a little tone deaf when it comes to some of the cultural, I guess, risk and protective factors that could have been taken into consideration with the safety planning. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So oftentimes, you know, a a standard safety plan will talk about, you know, some of the warning signs being emotional distress and, and then identifying coping strategies like meditation or relaxation or distraction. I'm not realizing that there are actual, um, so the case study that I referred to when, whenever um, this particular client identified as transgender um, and Asian American, and their warning signs and triggers were related to minority stress and family conflict. And so when they either got misgendered or they had um, an instance where they were reminded that their family doesn't, re- doesn't support their true gender identity, that is what would be the trigger that would lead them down the path of experiencing suicidal thoughts. Mm-hmm. But those, those triggers needed to be written on the safety plan. But, mm-hmm. but they, it, and it certainly was addressed in other parts of the treatment, but just wasn't merged together with the suicide-specific mm-hmm. approach, which I think it's partly because we haven't been trained to think that way in thinking about the suicide work as mm-hmm is yeah, with that cultural lens needs to be infused over here too. And we need to concretize the ways in which people can do that mm-hmm. and providers can do that. Mm-hmm. And I just am imagining the power of having those words in writing on the on the safety plan, identifying that minority stress as, you know, as, as legitimate and as valid and as deserving of attention as the other stressors. Yes, absolutely. And it goes down to a very practical thing of, okay, 
you know, 988, amazing resource. There's so many translation services, et cetera. But for that client, it was important that on that safety plan card that the Trevor Lifeline was written on there. Um, and that they had a, they wrote down a, a veteran LGBTQ plus support group that they had found mm-hmm. um, because that was that was the safe affirming space for them. Um, mm-hmm. And in a time of crisis, especially when that client's trigger is related to minority stress and being misgendered, that those it's so important for that to be the place that they're going to for crisis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So. You developed a really wonderful model, a cultural model of suicide, along with um, an assessment measure, the cultural assessment of risk for suicide. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about that cultural model of of suicide and then a little bit about the the CARS measure that you developed? Yeah, sure. Um, So this was back in 2009 or so. um, And so I had this mission alongside my um, good friends and colleagues, Dr. Bruce Bonger, who is um, well-known in the suicide um, community, um, and, and Peter Goldblum, Dr. Peter Goldblum, um, all three of us are clinical psychologists, and Dr. Goldblum uh, is an LGBTQ plus expert. And so we put our three heads together and we had this collective mission in wanting to advance the way that we do culturally responsive suicide work, suicide prevention work. And um, what we realized when we looked in the literature and what had been done before was that there was actually quite a lot of research. There are quite a bit out there, many, many different studies, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't digestible in one place. No, Mm -hmm. it wasn't, um, it was atheoretical. It wasn't organized. It wasn't synthesized into a way um, that we could use a model to inform future directions, let alone, you know, something that a clinician could access in the 15 minutes where they're trying to figure out what to do. Mm -hmm. And so that's why the the first step that we decided to do was to create the cultural theory and model of suicide. And so we we did a qualitative coding of 20 years of of every article that we could get our hands on. Um, yeah, I wasn't fun necessarily. No, as much as I love qualitative research, that seems like a lot. (laughs) Yes. Yes. It certainly wasn't something that could be done in a day. That was uh, definitely many, many, many hours of work. And it was such a collective effort. There were so many team members that we all worked together on. Yeah. And we coded every empirical finding that related any, um, cultural factor um, that was either differentially associated with higher levels of risk in different ethnic minority communities and LGBTQ plus communities, um, or was a risk factor for those communities that wasn't a risk factor for somebody else. Mm-hmm. And, and we, so we, and we found, um, thankfully, actually, that 95% of that culturally specific risk or culturally influenced risk was encompassed by four factors which is, um, is now part of the cultural theory model of suicide. So it's, it, it uh, forms the acronym MISC, which is minority stress, idioms of distress, social discord, and cultural sanctions. And they, they fall on three, really three to four, depending on if you're taking a public health perspective, um, but three to four concepts of um, how to incorporate culture into your work 
uh, and interior suicide prevention and management work. And it really, uh, for me, it just changes the way that I critically think about the work so that it is infused in all of my clinical thinking. Um, and so, and we know that to cover many, many, you know, 95% or more of the, of the cultural considerations. So that's the cultural theory model. Uh, and we've thought a lot about how to train folks on mm -hmm. how to use that model to change their practice. Sure. And the CARS was something that we created right after that model. It's called the Cultural Assessment of Risk for Suicide Measure, and it has 39 items. We subsequently validated a 14-item screener. We are in the process of creating the second version. Um, we really wanted to go back and do a even more thorough job with a qualitative phase of item development using cognitive interviewing. So we're really excited. We're about to launch our um, CARS 2.0 study for the psychometric validation study. But, but the CARS measure is something that clinicians can use. It's, um, it's out there free for anybody to use. Um, and it assesses for those MISNC, so those four factors, uh, cultural factors uh, for risk and protective factors for suicide. Mm -hmm. Dr. Tu, do you mind repeating the, the four factors? I got three of them, I think. Yeah, sure. So it's um, M for minority stress, uh -huh. I for idioms of distress, which is different languages of distress. That includes different ways that people, uh, for example, some, um, some more dependently oriented folks mm -hmm. uh, experience some of their suicidal distress as shame. Um, or you might see more fatigue early on in some of the lower risk uh, times of, of their suicidal distress. Mm -hmm. And it might look more like concerns with productivity. Um, hey, I'm not getting things done. I feel tired. I'm really ashamed of what I did or something about me. Um, and like, oh, I don't, I don't really want to bother anybody with the fact that I'm thinking that I'm thinking that others would be better off without me. I'm, I'm just not going to talk about that right now, but I am going to say, yeah, I'm tired because that's, that's more culturally acceptable to express yourself that way. Um, left the name distress, um, S is social discord. We found that folks, particularly who are more interdependently oriented, uh, when in essence, you know, when you have multiple parts of your family that are the same as yourself, then the thought is that if you have conflicts with your family members or people in your community, it's in essence having self-conflict more so than somebody that's independently oriented, thus uniquely elevating your risk for suicide. Um, and, and then conversely, that's true for, for example, for LGBTQ plus folks, uh, we do know there's empirical evidence that connection to a safe and affirming space and community is uniquely protective. And that when you when we want to work with and support someone who is identifying as LGBTQ plus and maybe one of their stressors is related to um, the coming out process, then it's important mm -hmm. to um, look to see whether or not they can be connected to a safe affirming space. So that's in the social discord, but the opposite, the protective version of that. And C is yeah. cultural sanctions, which is um, what your culture, religion, family says about the acceptability of either things that have happened to you in your life or of suicide. So if I've, yeah. you know, if I've had a job loss, um, but I, and I am the primary income earner for my family and I'm, and my family expects me to play that role, 
then mm-hmm. that's going to put me at greater risk for suicide than for somebody for whom it's a side job um, right. or not as important. And then acceptability of suicide in terms of, uh, you know, what a religion will say in terms of suicide mm-hmm. as a viable option or the concept of an honor suicide in Japan of suicide, sure. death being an acceptable way of, of atoning for or removing shame brought on to somebody's family mm-hmm. that when you have that view about suicide, that becomes a risk factor. So it's remembering mm. that we need to look for those cultural meanings of suicide and um, Sylvia Canetto and Stice, they've done some really amazing work around cultural meanings. All of these concepts, you know, have an extensive research base around it. Uh, I think with the cultural theory model suicide and the CARS does is just put it in one place and hopefully a digestible community, com- easily communicated terms that folks can learn and, and incorporate into their work. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I teach, um, a seminar in psychopathology and something that I think my students and I come back to again and again as it relates to culture and our perceptions of psychopathology relates to kind of a critique of our diagnostic kind of conceptualizations where there's this you know chapter in the end of the diagnostic manual where we say like okay these are the cultural disorders uh, and they should be, you know, they're treated as this different thing than all of the other disorders. And um, so I'm having kind of a similar reaction a, a bit to what you're saying, Dr. Chu, in, in terms of, you know, is, isn't good suicide risk assessment or, or management, for, regardless of your clients identities and regardless of they whether they have minoritized identities isn't it like culturally responsive and in other words like i'm i'm kind of wrestling with like these trying to understand um these layers of people's experience um i'm wondering about like this being wanting clinicians to do this with every client not just their you know clients that maybe racially or ethnically minoritized yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for that comment. And that could be an entire other podcast. I also teach psychopathology and have done lots of thinking about how um, we incorporate culture there too. So I am right there with you about the importance of that and the critique of the DSM. Uh, the One of the reasons why I think that something like this model is possible is because it takes a cultural to the work rather than a group a, a solely group mm-hmm. approach to the work, yeah. meaning that there are lots of reasons, for example, why um, why is it that Asian Americans and Latine, Latino, Latina, Latine individuals do have low rates of service use? Um, if you break it down, they have, they may have, um, the rates are abysmally low and have been for decades. And it's a huge problem. Um, And it's a very multifaceted problem. One of the cultural reasons why you see that group difference for Asian Americans is high stigma around mental health. One of the cultural reasons for that group difference for Latino, Latina, Latine individuals is also stigma around mental health. So the idea is if you can isolate the cultural mechanism behind the group difference Mm -hmm. and not in place of understanding that group 
um, specific attention is important. You need both, but you can measure for stigma when and right. understand that when stigma is high, then you need a different approach to outreach. And so that's what the cultural, the CARS does is that it takes that cultural approach and asks about minority stress, realizing that minority stress is something that a racial hate crime is the expression of minority stress, perhaps for um, you know different communities of color, versus mm -hmm. misgendering for a gender non-binary or transgender community is also minority stress. Acculturative stress when somebody is um, somebody who is trying to support their monolingual Spanish-speaking father, um, and they have a hard time. They have less freedom as a teenager to explore. Um, their their own time because of some of those responsibilities. That's another minority stress too. And mm -hmm. so we we ask questions that will tap into all of those higher order constructs, realizing that the experience of that higher level construct may be different for each individual or different group. So we ask but for minority stress. We might ask the question of, have you ever felt treated differently because of your ethnic, sexual, gender identity, for example? And then that will be, then the clinician can individualize from there. But what happens then is that you have an instrument that can be used for every client. And I do think that some, you know, some folks think that, yeah, it, those questions should be asked of every client. Because when you take a multiple intersecting identities perspective to the work, everybody has a culture. Um, and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and this is work that needs to be infused for everyone without minimizing the attention to a lot of the specific cultural needs of specific groups. So they need to go hand in hand. I think a lot of times we'll say like, oh, well, we need to work with the Filipino community. And so what happens there is everyone's like, oh, okay, well, that group can do that. Mm -hmm. and, and then we don't need to worry about the other general work and we can just proceed as planned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, uh... One other kind of question or clarifying uh, thing, and then I'll, I'll toss it back over to, to Sarah, is um, I think a tension I'm feeling is like, on, on the one hand, I, I'm thinking, well, these these processes like that responsible or responsive clinicians need to be aware of these dynamics with any client because we all have culture. But then I think the other side of that tension that I'm maybe wrestling with is not wanting to minimize that there are groups in our communities that have been, you know, systematically oppressed and are underrepresented and underserved by our system. So we also need to like kind of not dismissing that second piece and doing that hard work and acknowledging that while also maybe noting that we all have culture. Yeah, well, I think when you when you assess for and you incorporate um, these cultural factors throughout the work, you're not doing something that's quote unquote, you know, colorblind or uh, it's not a universal approach. It's not, mm. it's not a culture, a colorblind approach. Mm. It is actually uh, paying very close to um, color, identity, disability, et cetera. Um, and paying attention to someone's lived experience um, through their words. And you need to do a lot of follow-up work when you do um, some of this assessment, but what we're not doing is even looking at some of these cultural factors. We're not looking at historical um, oppression, historical trauma. 
Uh, and, and this is really cueing us to remember that we need to look for that and then understand the person's particular social experience and lived experience um, and in that concept of um, you know, institutionalized racism, for example. Mm -hmm. Thanks for that. So we are rapidly approaching the top of the hour, <laughs> and this has been such a great conversation, and we so appreciate you um, joining us today. Is there anything else that you'd like to share or anything that we haven't asked you about that you wanted to make sure to share with our listeners today? Um, well, let's see. So many things. I just, I want to appreciate everybody for the really amazing and important work that we're doing as a community. I mean, this is, there's so much that we need to tackle that I don't think um, any one person from any one perspective needs, you know, can do it. Um, I'm a psychologist, but I work alongside, you know, my social work colleagues and my public health colleagues like Sarah here. Yeah. And I've learned so much from that. And I think that we need to work as a community to, to put these things forth. Um, you know, I, I'm in just thinking about, you know, some of the future directions, one of the most exciting um, projects that I'm, I'm really excited to get out there is uh, a, a study that we just are completing on how to ask about suicide across mm -hmm. cultures. Um, we've been using the same questions to assess for suicidal thoughts and behaviors yes. for the longest time. And we've had little to no empirical guidance about how that needs to be different. And mm -hmm. so we need efforts like that. And then we need multiple folks um, with in different roles to support this work. Yeah. Um, so that's, I guess that. Absolutely. I can't wait to read that study. That sounds fascinating. So yeah, we'll do our best to get it out there. <laughs> yeah, we'll keep our eyes peeled for that. And maybe you can uh, keep us posted when that comes out and we can share with our listeners as well. Thank you so, so much again for your time today and for sharing with us. Uh, we are just thrilled that you took some time to chat with us today. And for our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in for this uh, month's podcast episode. We will be back um, next month. We are going to be chatting with another wonderful guest. So hopefully you will tune in. Just a reminder to take some time to take care of yourself today and do something nice for yourself. If you're here with us in Wisconsin, maybe look out at the snow and enjoy being cozy inside your house. And again, if you are in need of resources, um, 988 is available. I also just want to promote um, another resource that is uh, based on peer support, and that's called um, Alternatives to Suicide. Here in Wisconsin, we do have an Alternatives to Suicide support group that you can find by going to the website mhawisconsin.org slash alt, the number two, and then the letters SU, alt to sue. Thank you again so much to Dr. Chu for your time today. And Andrew, thanks so much for being a great co-host. <laughs> uh, thank you both. Take care, everyone. All right. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.